This is episode 136 of the Stem Cell Podcast, HSC Trafficking, with Dr. Paul Fernet. Hey everybody, I'm Daylon James. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today we got a good one for you, y'all, but before we get to that, are you interested in getting links to all the papers discussed in each episode? You ought to be. You got to go deeper can't listen to what I'm saying, subscribe to our newsletter and you'll get a summary of each episode, including links to interview and roundup papers delivered straight to your inbox each time a new episode comes out. Now on to the show. Today we got Dr. Paul Fernet from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's here to talk about his research on the HSC microenvironment, the role of the nervous system in cancer, and the vascular biology that underlies sickle cell disease. And of course, we've also got a roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, you know, as I mentioned a couple episodes and I've been calling it back, the Stem Cell Podcast is looking for a new co-host, all right? I'm not enough to keep you guys satisfied. We need to bring somebody in. Applications are now open. If you're an experienced stem cell researcher with a flair for science, communication, and conversation, then we want you to join us to apply Visit www.stemcellpodcast.com slash co-host and submit your cover letter, CV, and a short recording of yourself discussing a recent paper in the field of stem cell biology. And who knows, in just a few short months, it could be you here with me discussing the latest in stem cell research with one of our August guests. All right. Next on to the roundup, today I got five stories for you. We're going to wander through the kidney. We're going to talk about diabetes with a couple stories. And then, of course, we're going to end with the blood in an homage to our guest, Dr. Fernet. First, with the kidney, this is a story out of Jennifer Lewis and Ryoji Morizani. Morizane. Sorry, Ryoji, for the butchered pronunciation. This is from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. It's a nature method story about enhancing flow, all right? Well, more flow enhancement. If you, you know, need to get a, a organ out of a cell, the truth is you're going to have to multiply, you're going to have to get into 3D, right? We all know that. But I don't think we really appreciate the other biomechanical forces. It's not just the three dimensions that are in there. It's like the forces implicit to being alive in the body, okay? So, you know, the kidney, it continuously filters the blood. That's what the kidney's job is. So, clearly tied to the vascular system there. Um, And the vasculature is actually implicated in a lot of contexts in epithelial maturation in vivo. So, uh, Dr. Lewis and Morizane, they posited that if you enhanced the vascularization and maturation um, or if that if you had enhanced vascularization, it would also promote maturation in these human pluripotent stem cell derived kidney organoids in vitro. Okay, and the way that they could get the enhanced vascular vascularization, they were thinking, is to subject the organoids to the same environmental cues you get in like a developing organ, essentially blood flow. Okay, so what they did is they developed this microfluidic culture system in order to probe the effects of a bunch of stuff, uh, extracellular matrix, the media, 
They had cells in there and human endothelial cells. And most importantly, they wanted to look at the effect of fluid shear stress on these organoids. And what they observed is that when they in, exposed kidney organoids to uh, shear stress in extracellular matrix in these little organs on a chip type thing, that when they exposed them to this uh, fluidic shear stress, they got enhanced formation of bona fide vascular networks that were patent. Um, and moreover, the vascularized kidney organoids, uh, they had more mature podocyte tubular compartments with enhanced cellular polarity and the in adult gene expression profile um, compared to controls. And the development of the glomeruli there in complex with the vasculature progressed through the same stages that they would that they do in embryonic mammalian kidneys okay so this is i mean let me just you know disclaim this is in mouse but it's very cool because it's a it's a I, these organoids are kind of de novo creating vasculature and in in response to the fluid sh shear stress there that biomechanical cue they're becoming more mature and so it's kind of a you're getting all the, the, the cues in place. We're approaching the real in vivo context. And this, you know, the, the ability here with this nature, with this new method, why it's in nature methods, the ability to get good quality vascularization and in conjunction with that morphological maturation in kidney organoids in vitro and this flow system blows open the door. New avenues for studying kidney development, disease, Regeneration, Harvard Stem Cell Institute, not surprising. Doing crazy stuff there. That's it for the kidney for today. Let's move on into diabetes. You know, this is it. This is it. I, you know, it's always the season, but this is, we're coming back from a rough new year. Our organs are vitally, they're, they're, they're struggling with all the gluttony. So let's get after it, you know, let's fix it. The first thing we got to do with the diabetes, obviously, is get these beta cells. You know, this isn't just type 2, obviously. I don't want to be insensitive. Type 1 autoimmune diabetes, it's a bigger issue, much more sympathetic. The, the thing is with, with diabetes and treatment of cell-based therapies, although there's recent reports that have, uh, you know, they've shown beta and beta-like cells from human pluripotent stem cells, the cells have limited functionality. Okay, and the, the, unlike like true human islets that you get from cadavers and transplant, they function immediately when you transplant them. The, the pluripotent stem cell-derived cells, they can respond to glucose challenge in vivo, but it's only like two to six weeks after you transplant them. So clearly there's a, there's a gap here. They're kind of immature. Um, Matthias Hebrook from UCSF and his group they're going after means to make them more bona fide, more legit beta cell and their, their, their hypothesis there, well-reasoned, is to, that they could mimic the endogenous endocrine cell clustering by re-aggregating immature beta-like cells from human pluripotent stem cells into enriched beta clusters, they call them. And, I mean, that's what they did. When they put these things together, they displayed physiological properties analogous to primary human beta cells, including robust dynamic insulin secretion, 
Um, and they displayed glucose-stimulated secretion as early as three days after transplantation in mice. So straight off, they're going to work. Uh, and this is a big deal, Abby, because if you can replicate the, the kind of the, the way these things are made in vivo, this, this endocrine cell clustering, if you can replicate that as they have done, you can generate the stem cell derived beta cells that are more authentic, that mirror their endogenous counterparts. And this is going to be a vital prerequisite to getting these things into the clinic, obviously. It seems like all our stories these days are moving towards this thing. It's all the same story. It's like, yeah, they've been making these cells on like a deconstructed level, but now we're making them the way the body makes them, and it's real. You know, Doug Melton just had a story about this too, actually, in Cell that I didn't get to put on the show. But you guys probably all saw that anyway because it's Doug Melton. Big up. All right, another diabetes story. Uh, this one coming out of Geneva. Diabetes is a problem everywhere, even in, in Switzerland. They're at peace, but they have diabetes, my friends. Pedro Herrera is trying to knock that out. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a kind of flip side of the story we just told you. Uh, and this is kind of a switch. What they're trying to do here is make, make a, a switch from one cell type to another. So, you know, a, a little bit of background. If you kind of wipe out the, the uh, beta cells in mice, that you can do like a full ablation in, 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 of beta cells in mice, and the, the, some associated cells will kind of become insulin-expressing cells and become responsive to kind of fill the gap. And the, so these are the like pancreatic alpha cells or the gamma cells. They can become insulin-expressing cells after you ablate all the betas, right? Uh, and it's not really known whether human islets can also display this plasticity. So uh, Pedro Herrera and Geneva want to go after that. And the, the essential innovation here, uh, this is a nature story, is that they were really rigorous and comprehensive. They first went from the cadaveric donors and they found some, uh, they got a very rigorous qualification of the alpha and beta, so that they knew what they were starting with, the alpha, the beta, the gamma, right? And then they introduced transcription factors, namely PDX1 and MAFA, M-A-F-A, uh, to kind of twist the non-insulin-expressing cells, or the alpha and the gamma, into insulin-expressing cells. Uh, and they introduced that by adenovirus, okay? So not, not a footprint. You know, this is a non-integrative technology. And then, similar to our, our, our boy, uh, Matthias Hebrook, at UCSF, we just talked about, they re-aggregated these things into the pseudo-islets. They put them in the little 3D clusters of one cell type. So, like, it, all the alphas, but the switched alphas. And what they found after doing this in vitro, in vivo, functional, molecular profile, all nine yards, is that they could, they could switch them. Uh, when you could take either alpha or the gamma cells, and by using these, this mechanism of adeno uh, reprogramming, you could get them to become insulin-expressing cells. And when transplanted into diabetic mice, these converted cells, they reversed diabetes, and they continued to produce insulin after six months. And I think this is, this is the, 
what resonates here because it's non-integrative. They can switch these cells and they maintain that identity, even though presumably the adenoviral encoded factors and have kind of been watered down and gone away, these things are still working. And that's big because non-integrative means of switch is what you need before you're going to use this for clinical application. I mean, extending this into what it would look like, you could take cadaveric beta cells, transplant them, maybe in little pseudo-islets, clustering, like Matthias showed us. Uh, but also, you would have a, a, a whole reservoir of the alpha and the gamma that would be good for donor material. And also, think of this. When it's your beta cells are knocked out, you can just tap the endogenous alpha cell. And that's the real, I think, implication here, is that you can repair the system in situ by kind of diverting the uh, resident surviving alpha and gamma cells. So, hey, they're partying in Geneva, have another, uh, another Big Mac. Although they, I don't even think they have McDonald's in Switzerland. I hope not. McDonald's is, hey, if you like McDonald's, who doesn't? But it's not good for the diabetes, let's be honest. Although, again, type 1, type 2, important distinctions to be made. I'm moving on. Story number four. We're going into the blood. Two stories about the blood because Paul Frenette, like me, is a vampire when it comes to the blood. This one's from Dave Scadden. He's a big deal. Harvard Stem Cell Institute. This is a bit of biotech, nature biotechnology. And, okay, just to set the stage, the problem is when you do the allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant, right? Donor, donor, you know, donor, recipient, allograft. There's a big lag in the... T-cell generation, and that renders these patients highly susceptible to infectious agents, and also it can be a complication that leads to graft-versus-host disease, this lag. So it's important that you need to get balanced reconstitution of the naive helper and effector T-cell subsets, as well as restoration of the T-cell receptor repertoire, and that's something that we haven't been able to do very well yet. and because the problem there, fundamentally, is that you need to have a, a ton of T-cell progenitors in play there um, and mobilize them, get them going. And the efforts to date to get that to happen while you're doing the allograft to mobilize the T's is to use cytokines. They use a bunch. Clinical trials, IL-7, IL-2, IL-22, IL everything. And the bottom line, it just doesn't get the job done uh, or it has some toxicity. It's just not, it's just not enough. Um, meanwhile, in, in vitro, you can, or actually you could take T cells out of the mouth or the circulating and, and um, you can generate robust precursors, expand them in, in vitro using not signaling, activation not signaling. But doing ex vivo culture all the time to generate these T cells, it's, 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 it, it takes a lot of work. It's laborious, and it's like transient. You can only have a little blip, and then the whole niche dissolves, and the gross, it's just not, like, sustainable. Um, so doing, like, a, a kind of broad translation of that approach, it's not really practical, you might argue, all right? So what Dave's getting and his peeps do over there at the Stem Cell Institute, also we should credit David Mooney. It's also corresponding on there. 
They make this uh, biomaterial-based scaffold, and it mimics the features of T-cell lymphopoiesis in the bone marrow. So it's kind of this, this biomaterial that's like a bone marrow. It's called bone marrow cryogel. So cool. And what it does, it releases bone morphogenic protein 2, BMP2, and that's to get the stroma cells from the, you know, you put it in the body, get some stroma cells to set up a little niche. Um, and then there's a notch ligand, specifically DLL4, and that's, you know, it's known to facilitate T-cell lineage specification with both mouse and human. So this bone marrow cryogel has those goodies in it. And when you sub-Q inject it, at the time of uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplant, you get enhanced T-cell progenitor seeding of thymus, T-cell neogenesis, and diversification of the T-cell repertoire. And the peripheral, rec okay, so in mouse, if you did mouse to mouse, you got peripheral T-cell reconstitution, six-fold increase, and then with a huma, human xenograft transplant, you got two-fold increase, which, I mean, I know, two-fold, big whoop, but that is a big whoop because two-fold increase is, could be the difference between, you know, succumbing to some uh, infection, opportunistic infection, or... Uh, getting graft for host disease. 2X is a big deal clinically, so all you big whoopers need to be quiet. So fundamentally, this bone marrow cryogel, it's because it's like, it's material, there's no cellular component to it. It could provide an off-the-shelf approach for enhancing T-cell regeneration and mitigating, mitigating GVHD following allograft. So you've done it again, David Scadden. This is one of those things where I feel like they're so smart the seasoned investigators out there. Although, did you guys see the Nature paper? It said that small teams disrupt, big teams develop. So I'm happy to be small. I'm a disruptor, I hope. But Scadden's developing some stuff. He's probably getting paid because that's something that I feel like you could put into, into the clinic. I'm sure they're already specking out some clinical trials for that. Good for you guys. Last story. This is apropos to our guest, Dr. Frenette, and you'll see why shortly. Um, this is from Philip Svirsky's group at Mass Gen Hospital, Harvard Medical, Harvard, Harvard, Harvard. Big surprise. Harvard's doing something else. Um, and this, you know why it's, it's apropos to Paul Frenette, is because it's about um, sleep and the circadian, I mean, it's about, it's kind of a circadian element to it which you'll hear in the interview, I hope, uh, how Paul has, you know, he's made a big imprint on circadian rhythms and hematopoiesis. This is a story about sleep, how sleep modulates hematopoiesis and protects against atherosclerosis, all right? Got to get your Zs. Uh, nearly half of the adults in the U.S. sleep fewer than seven, eight hours a day. I know I'm one of them. I sleep kind of like three hours. I wake up for an hour or two, and then I sleep another three hours. Am I the only one? I'm probably stressed. Lack of sleep, though, you know, not for me. I'm not, I'm not any of these things, I hope. Maybe I am. But increases risk, obesity, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease. But we don't really understand why. Everybody knows, like, oh, you work the night shift, you die six years earlier than average. But we don't understand the mechanisms, right? So, it, you know, thinking of specifically cardiovascular disease, um, the, the group, they look, use these, these uh, atherosclerosis-prone mice, and they subjected them to chronic sleep fragmentation, that, like, torture scenario where you don't let them sleep. I mean, not, it's humane, but it, it's not, you know, cozy, I'm sure. 
And what they found, there was no changes in the body weight in these atherosclerosis promites, no plasma cholesterol changes, glucose levels, all that was flat. Um, but still, the mice developed progressively larger atherosclerotic lesions. Huh. All right, so what is it that's accounting for it? Well, they looked in the aorta, and they saw that there was a buttload more monocytes, neutrophils, macrophages. All right, so right there, they were like, okay, looks like a hematopoietic component. Hmm. And this, of course, coincided with the light period, um, because that's when everything's mobilized, a lot of history. We had Svi Lapido telling us about that. But they had a a ton more circulating monocytes, neutrophils during the light period. Huh. Okay. And then they looked in, um, in not only if you just, if you uh, then looked at these mice in the hypothalamus, right? Because they looked at a lot of compartments. They were like hematopoiesis, of course, they saw that difference. But then they were looking at the bone structure. They were looking at like all things cardiovascular disease related. And they found there was essentially nothing, nothing really of note. So then they looked at the hypothalamus. And specifically looking at um, the relationship of like sleep and, and circadian elements to, in the hypothalamus in these conditions, and they found that there was decreased expression of this hypocretin, also known as orexin, in the hypothalamus when you had them with this sleep fragmentation in these mice, right? So this was kind of a link to this hypocretin in the hypothalamus or of course what i mean this is a nature paper they went so deep all right most people stop there like yay we did we showed it's hypocretin yay but not them philip going after it so they go to the hypocretin null mice of course what do they see phenocopy higher number of monocytes and neutrophils in the blood bam all right so then going even more downstream they say what's the link of how the heck is hypocretin deficiency doing, like, having this effect on atherosclerosis? They look in, in, in combining just hypocretin knockout and the atherosclerosis-prone mice. Forget about sleep fragmentation. Just combining no hypocretin and, the, and these atherosclerosis-prone mice, they get the larger lesions again. So they definitively link this hypocretin downstream of sleep fragmentation to the atherosclerotic lesions, but they're still not done there because then it's like, well, ha- what's hypocretin doing in the hematopoietic system? This is erection. It's supposed to regulate, like, appetite, you know? Well, what they found eventually, I mean, they must have knocked out half the genes in, in the mouse. That's extreme. But they did a lot and ultimately showed that hy- hypocretin controls myelopoiesis, myelopoiesis so all those cells that we talked about, they're increasing circulation. It restricts the production of colony stimulating factor, CSF, by pre-neutrophils in the bone marrow. So when you lose hypocretin or when you get sleep fragmentation, you mess up hypocretin, these, the myelopoiesis is totally unleashed. And this, if you have pre-existing conditions that lend to cardiovascular disease, you're hosed. This identifies a neuroimmune axis that links sleep to hematopoiesis and atherosclerosis. So get your Z's or you get some hypocretin supplements if you're on the night shift and you have high cholesterol. That's my takeaway on this one. And that's going to be it for the roundup. We're about to get into the interview. But before we do that, are your eyes tired from counting hematopoietic colonies? You got to let STEM vision do the work for you, people. 
achieve fully automated imaging and standardized counting of human or mouse hematopoietic CFU assays. Okay, find out more by visiting www.stemcell.com slash stemvision. All one word, stemcell.com slash stemvision. Okay, if you want to figure out what's going on with your CFUs after a big night and an early morning, you need to get on the STEM vision, my peeps. All right, guys, we're on to the interview today. We're very pleased and blessed to have on the show Dr. Paul Frenette uh, from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's the chair and director of the Ruth L. and David S. Gottesman Institute for Stem Cell and Regenerative Medicine Research. Dr. Frenette's lab is interested in understanding how hematopoietic stem cells and mature blood cells traffic in vivo, amongst other things, many other things that we'll get to. The research, though, generally focuses on three main branches, let's say. Uh, One, the molecular and cellular constituents of the stem cell niche and the mechanisms of HSC mobilization. Two, vascular biology and sickle cell disease, specifically the mechanisms of sickle cell vaso-occlusion. And last but not least the role of the nervous system in cancer. But we're going to talk about a lot of stuff because Dr. Frenette, Paul, if I may call him so, has, has done it all. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, Dr. Frenette. My pleasure, Dalen. My pleasure. It's yeah. good to be here. Yeah, well, the, the pleasure's ours. Thanks for coming on. Why don't you start by uh, giving us a kind of overview of your research focus in your lab? Well, you've said you've said it well. I think uh, you know we, we're doing too many things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I, you know, I started when I started the lab. We started. I was recruited uh, to work on sickle cell disease. Believe it or not. So we um, we started a, pro- a sickle cell program. But I was interested in in stem and progenitor cell homing and mobilization in those days. So I developed that program uh, also at the same time. So we started with these two uh, programs and ideas and, uh, and uh, we, you know, I've, so I've since continued to work on these two uh, areas and we've made, you know, sometimes you make it, you don't know where the science will take you. And that's certainly the case. So we've made some, some findings that led us to some paths that, that we didn't expect. And that's what led us eventually to start another program on, on because we had discovered the role of the nervous system in, in regulating the microenvironment and stem cell uh, uh, mobilization um, in the bone marrow. So we thought maybe in cancer there's some uh, function for the nervous system. So that's why we started to work on, on the prostate. Uh, program. So I'm, I'm trying to juggle. I'm not very good at juggling, uh, and I'm trying to juggle these three balls. The problem is that each ball has become a slit into multiple balls. Right. Right. And at the beginning, it's 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 doable, but the more you you go, the more you advance, the more difficult it becomes to juggle. I find. Yeah, I think you're uh, you're at that yeah Cirque du Soleil stage at this point. Yeah. I mean, there's like <laughs> nine or ten balls in the air. <laughs> yeah, yes. So it's a stage. It's more difficult to uh, to handle. So I'm, I'm uh, even sometimes I'm thinking I should cut back on on some projects. Oh well, I don't I don't think you need to cut back at all, Paul. For the good of mankind, keep on going. We're going to touch on all these branches individually. I want to start though with the uh, the sickle cell because I think uh, there's a nice maybe 
well, I guess I'll ask the question. Have we kind of like closed the loop here? You started with sickle cell and you've, you know, uh, unraveled a lot of the mechanisms of, of sickle cell and how it leads to all the, the, you know, tragic consequences. But interestingly, I think like you look in the news right now about sickle cells, we're kind of like at a cure stage, right? So tell us about this. Is this like a final solution for sickle cell? And if it is, like, is that what you envisioned for a cure for sickle cell? Or is it totally like, a, you know, you would have never guessed that this is the way that we've solved the problem? No, I, well, I think what's very exciting, what's happening for a curative therapy, particularly with gene editing now in sickle cell. So that's coming along, but we're, you know, it's still in early stages uh, but you can see for the first time, I mean, so they were always, so I'm going to backtrack and say that for curative therapies, you know, transplantation, as you know, was the way to go. But of course, very, you know, not all patients are eligible for transplantation. And when they are actually, they don't do as well because the patients are heavily transfused. So their immune system is revved up or maybe the other things going on in the microenvironment, but the engraftment is always, is always more problematic with sickle patients, although they do, they're still, you know, they do well if they have a good match, but particularly if you do um, uh, with these mini transplants and all of this, it, didn't, uh, it doesn't work as well as uh, one would, would like. So there's room definitely for other curative therapy and gene therapy was one that you know people had in mind, uh, and uh, you know it's it's been difficult to express enough of the globin genes to be able to suppress um, the sickling. So for those and in the audience who may not know what sickle cell is, but sickle cell disease comes from it's a simple genetic mutation of of the uh, globin gene, a missense mutation that lead to a change of one amino acid. And that makes the, the globin, uh, particularly in conditions of low oxygen, to polymerize, to precipitate, and to make the red cell very rigid. And that's why, you know, where the name sickle cell uh, comes from, a cell is sickling. And, and that can um, lead to vasoclusion. And so one of the findings that we had made uh, doing intravital microscopy early on was because we were gearing up to understand red cell biology. And when I started in this, I didn't know uh, anything about red cells. And, but I had a background in cell adhesion. And I thought I would work on cell adhesion of red cells with the endothelium or something like that. But what we found when uh, the humanized uh, mouse model became available and we could look by intravital microscopy in real time in blood vessels, we found that leukocytes were, were playing a major role in, in the occlusion. So we see interactions between uh, red cells and, and leukocytes, and in particular neutrophils are the cells that are quite uh, active. And so we um, you know, found that if you block leukocyte uh, recruitment and activation, for example, by blocking selectins, uh, you, at least the mice were dramatically improved and this has led to clinical trials, and now there are some clinical trials of phase three now uh, with selectin uh, blockers. And the phase two studies uh, have, uh, were very promising with uh, 
uh, early, you know, significant changes. And uh, one trial was done in setting of crisis uh, that improved or shortened the crisis and, and decreased the severity of the crisis. And one other trial was done sort of a more preventive uh, administration of selecting blockade. That showed also um, a reduction of uh, crisis rates. So that may be promising. So it's in phase three. We'll see what happens in, in the long run. But, but so that is um, one aspect of therapy is anti-adhesion. And that's, you know, lo looking good for, for sickle cell. There are other targets. There are multiple uh, clinical trials that are being done now with uh, various uh, targets. So there's going to be some some uh, some therapies there that may be um, beneficial, but these therapies, of course, are not curative. So the you know talk about the curative therapy is is to basically uh, be able to uh, change the gene or correct the gene uh, in stem cells, for example. That would be exciting, and that's also ongoing. And that uh, you know may be uh, uh, very uh, a big step forward uh, in, in the treatment of this disease. So, I mean, and along those lines, like it sounds like what you're talking about, there's many ways to skin a cat. There's been many approaches, many of them developed by you to address uh, sickle cell. And like, I guess, do you, are you representative of a shift from maybe a more pharmacological biologic to the regenerative curative? In your career, it seems like you've spanned both those approaches. Is your research focus moving forward, like, ex not exclusively perhaps, but more focus on the curative? Do you think that that's going to be the status quo in the new era of medicine? Or do you think that there's a place for all these therapeutic approaches? Yeah, it's kind of strange. Uh, you know, you would think that uh, because of our interest in stem cells and background, that you know, my interest in sickle cell would be more in the curative uh, aspect, right? But all our research is basically dealing with vaso occlusion, which is a complication, and trying to understand mm -hmm. uh, how the occlusion takes place and try to, to uh, alleviate uh, uh, that process. And that comes from uh, you know, our initial research and my original background, which was uh, more in vascular biology, leukocyte adhesion, and adhesion in general, and how cells adhere to blood vessels. And, and so it's still a major aspect of it. We've branched out in, in some ways because we found that you know, like many things, that the, the microbiome was actually influencing the activity of the neutrophils and, and, and made a big difference in vaso-occlusion. And, and that's, that's important also clinically for sickle cell, particularly for the pediatric population, and maybe more also the adult, is, is the, first, the first clinical trial that was done with sickle cell uh, uh, kids was to give uh, penicillin to prevent infections. Mm. Because in this disease, the spleen doesn't work uh, because of all the vaso-occlusion uh, episodes. And so it's as if you don't have a spleen. And when you don't have a spleen, particularly if you're a, a child, you're more susceptible to uh, pneumococcus or meningococcus, so these uh, bacteria that are encapsulated. And so um, 
So the kids were given penicillin to prevent infections, and it made the, the trial was was very uh, uh, dramatic in terms of that it, it had to be stopped because it was so beneficial. Um, but this now that we found that the microbiome influenced the crisis rate, it leads to other questions as to there might be other effects of of uh, manipulating the microbiome that could be beneficial in in for these patients in terms of their uh, occurrence of crisis and severity of infections and potentially if we uh, uh, follow the experiments that we've done in mice we find organ damage also is is dramatically improved if you reduce the microbiota with uh, you know antibiotics uh, so so there might so that raises questions about okay um, is Penicillin, the right antibiotic to give to patients. <laughs> you know, no one. Uh, and 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 now you stop giving it after five years of age. Uh, that was the trial. So is that the right thing to do? Is there any benefit to give more uh, or longer? And what type? And and or can you manipulate the microbiome differently to to also uh, alleviate some uh, some of these uh, issues. So that's that's a major focus currently in my lab to uh, to try to address some of these questions. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, I'm switching gears a little bit because there's you know your career, although you're still a young man, you've been very productive. Um, a seminal idea of yours in, the, in from your lab while you're still at Sinai was this. Uh, the idea of the connection between the, the nervous system and, and first in the form of the circadian rhythms. Um, and, you know, we're still talking about that. We just had Svilapido on the, on the show a few weeks back talking about his cell stem cell paper that was talking about, you know, differential mobilization in the light dark. This is such a, a, a fundamental idea, I think, that's been incorporated into stem cell science now that there is this nervous component that's taken for granted, but it's not intuitive, right? The idea that there's a direct connection of the nervous system into the stem cell mobilization, the bone marrow, how did you arrive at that? Um, well, yeah, that was uh, sort of, uh, you know, some some luck and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the, so the projects, when I started my lab, I, you know, I, I said at the, uh, the onset that, that we, I had to work on sickle cell through my recruitment, and I was interested in stem cell mobilization, and I had worked with selectins, I made some knockouts, so, and I was interested in, and I showed before I started my PI job that selectins were playing a role in homing to bone marrow. So one simple question was, you know, are selectins important for mobilization steps? So at that time, it wasn't clear, um, you know, whether molecules that are important to, for stem cells to go in are important for stem cells to egress the bone marrow. And so we started these, these experiments with a compound called Fucoidan. It's a sulfated uh, polysaccharide. It mimics selectin function, it blocks uh, certain selectins. And we found that it could mobilize stem cells in pretty efficiently in a selectin-independent manner. Uh, and so I was just you know, starting assistant professor. And I thought this was really interesting 
And I thought it was a bit crazy. I said, I'm going to try to understand how this thing works. Okay, so why why is it that you have this mobilization effect? So ficoidin is made by algae, so it's not synthesized uh, in mammals or even in vertebrate. Uh, but there are other sulfated compounds that have very similar properties. So we uh, worked on, and there was in particular there was a sulfated uh, uh, lipid. Uh, sulfatide that was very similar, and and the enzymes had been worked out. So as a just a shot in the dark, I contacted uh, a, a person, uh, essentially Brian Popko, who made the knockout in in the enzyme uh, that uh, synthesized this, and I said we're going to test it out. And and we uh, so these mice have a neuro neurological problem. You know, because sulfatide is a very important lipid in Schwann cells and oligodendrocytes. And so it insulates the axons. And so the mice become shaky, uh, you know, after, after birth. You know, the mice are fine, but they start having problems at about four weeks of age and, and you know, cannot feed, feed well and, and die. And so we had, uh, we did some experiments very early on and we found that these mice did not mobilize stem cells. So that was very interesting. So we said, so the question was, was why? So that, that was interesting to see in vivo that this, you have an endogenous uh, lipid that missing, that seems to be important. So we spent a lot of time, the early postdocs, I thought I would become a biochemical, you know, lipid uh, lab trying to fractionate lipids and, and see how this thing works. So we, we spent uh, two or three years trying to uh, look at what was the problem in the bone marrow and, and, uh, and we did some imaging. We were very interested in SDF, CXCL12. We saw that it was mislocalized a little bit and that may be contributing to this. And, you know, at that time, the osteoblasts were important. And, but you had this, this mouse that had a severe neurological defect that was sitting there. And they, of course, the idea it was really crazy at the time. Now you, you say it, but it doesn't sound, but at the time it was crazy. And this idea, I mean, I mentioned it, I remember to incoming students that were rotating, you know, we could maybe dismouse the reason why there's, there's the problem is, is the neurological defects. And we could look at, at um, the role of the nervous system. And nobody said, oh, no, that's, you know, nobody wanted to work on this. This is, it was just too crazy. So that's why we worked on two years trying to figure out, where to look at everything. Everything was pretty much normal. Up until at the end, we had no choice. There was only one option left that I could, you know, we could think of was to look at the nervous system. And, that, and that's where we found that, that, in particular, the sympathetic nervous system was playing a role in, in regulating uh, stem cell egress. Uh, so the first paper was really uh, uh, in, in a setting of mobilization. But then the circadian story is another story that came, uh, you know, by sort of by chance. Uh, uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, story by itself, but it's when we, we uh, I don't know if you have time for that or not. We got time for you, Paul. Tell us all. 
you know, so, so but that story is, is cute because it comes with, we, we found, so Michaela Batista was a, a postdoc in the lab and she um, was, her project was to figure out, we had found nervous system, adrenergic signals are important, figure out what receptors are involved, you know, try to dissect the pathways uh, uh, better. And so she came to lab meeting and showed data uh, about mobilization, and the data was all over the place. I mean, there was between just the, the, the wild-type mice control that she was using, you know, there was like a 40% variation in her data. I said, Michaela, it's impossible. I mean, you can't, we're not gonna find anything. If your experiment is so irreproducible, it's not gonna work. Uh, so, uh, so she, so I, you know, I, so I asked her, I told her, you have to see either it's your, you have technical problem or there's something going on. The reagents that they're using are not good. There, there's something wrong here. So she went back and in those days, everybody was speaking in lab meeting every week. So she came back a week or two later and said, you know, I checked everything. I'm sure that my uh, technique is good. I, I I checked all the reagents, everything is fine. Well, there's something that I noticed when I went to the mouse room at eight o'clock is that the uh, the light was still on hmm. when it should have been off. And and um, and then this is how I said, you know, kind of tilt, I said, well, maybe light can affect the, the, the result. <laughs> Uh, this is where we put, then we said, so I called the, the, the vet in our institution. I said, uh, you know, don't touch. It doesn't work, but just don't, don't touch it <laughs> for, for a week or two. And we will compare mice that are, you know, regular 12 hours of darkness and light with mice that are constant, constant light. And, and then we saw that indeed the mice that were exposed to constant light were completely messed up. And they had, or on average, mobilization that was uh, significantly reduced compared to uh, the, the, the normal, you know, light and darkness animals. And, and so this is where we started to uh, develop this. Other postdocs uh, came, uh, uh, Danny Lucas, and then uh, Simon mm. Mendes Ferrer came and worked on this project and we developed it. And so three people were working on, on this because it was very difficult at the beginning. We didn't have any, so you had to come, you know, every day sample the mice every four hours, 24 hours a day. So it was, you know, as a team, they worked on the, on the, on the issue to try to figure it out. And, uh, and then that's where the, that paper came from. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great story to illustrate how, you know, you got to drill down into the negative results, right? And that's where maybe you find the gold or the weird specious results. Yeah. Although yeah. it's hard for me to understand how you then part. Obviously, it, it wasn't some kind of serendipity or maybe it was. And then the adrenergic and autonomic role in prostate cancer. That, to me, I'm still struggling with the how, where that connection is, is it the same idea? It's like that, having to do with the blood? Well, it's sort of logical connection, mm. uh, more, more so, because the idea was uh, at the time of the first paper, so that even I had a, 
a grant, uh, um, you know, sort of an idea grant in 2006 on this. Uh, when we published the first paper, so the, the idea is if you, if the nervous system is important for stem cell migration and egress, maybe it's important for cancer, for solid cancer. The idea originally was metastasis, okay, of cancer to leave the, the tumor. So initially, that's how... But we, sorry to interrupt you, but the, the logic there being because cancer is... A, like, I can understand why the hematopoietic compartment would mobilize with light and dark, with your resting, and this is when your immune system should be out, or whatever. But yeah. why is a cancer... Is the same idea the cancer will grow differently depending on whether there's, if the body's active? Is that, is that the fundamental idea? That the cancer is better to grow at some time of day than another? Or... or well, you know, the idea came even before we made the discovery of circadian. So there was no circadian component in this when we started to work on this. Mm. No, it was, we had the first paper was not, there was no circadian. We had found that when you induce and force mobilization, for example, with GCSF, that you need an intact sympathetic nervous system to have optimal migration of stem cells, okay? Mm. So that was the finding. So the question was then, well, if you have that in this kind of situation of, of a sort of a stress situation, maybe in cancer you have also a situation where you, you have a contribution of nerves in regulating. Initially I was thinking about metastasis uh, and that, was the original, it may be CXCL12 and SDF plays a role in this. So there was some data about, in those days, about SDF, uh, CXCL12 playing a role in, in cancer cell migration, uh, particularly carcinomas. And we chose prostate because the prostate was innervated and, and we had some you know, somebody on the floor basically had, had a cell line that, you know, that allowed me to, to to, you know, to, to uh, try to generate some preliminary data. It's often like this, you know, so, so a little bit of uh, circumstance. And, but it turns out it's a good, it was a good choice probably because now we know the prostate is actually very densely innervated, uh, probably more than, than other carcinomas and other uh, uh, glands, uh, exocrine uh, glands. Uh, for example, the breast or, or, or pancreas, where also nerves have been shown to now play some role. So, so but we, what we found was different. It was not metastasis, but we found that you need nerves in the prostate actually to, to form the tumor initially. Um, and we had a follow-up paper last, uh, last uh, two years ago now, where um, we've looked more in the mechanism and actually the tumor does form, but uh, you have an angiogenic switch that is really enabled by the signals from uh, 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 the sympathetic nerves uh, through, again, the adrenergic receptors. Particularly, we looked at beta-2 in detail with knockouts and, and knockdown and whatnot, and we found that the beta-2 expression on the endothelial cells the cells that you love uh, were were actually playing an important role, and it was a, a key uh, in switching metabolism, the metabolism of the endothelial cells. Hmm. 
So the, endo the angiogenic endothelial cells, as you may know, is using glycolysis largely um, as its source of, uh, of uh, you know, when uh, uh, using glucose and its source of, uh, of energy. Uh, but when you uh, treat these endothelial cells um, uh, with a, a, a beta-2 adrenergic blocker, or if you knock down the beta-2 receptor, you basically switch the metabolism and they become, they use oxidative phosphorylation. Mm. You know, you just switch them completely and they make ATP and they, they really are completely different and they don't migrate well. And so they, 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 they lose their, their antigenic function as well. And so that's what we, we, we described and that's what we found. So the, the nerves, at least the sympathetic nerve seems to play a role in, in, um, in regulating the endothelial cell metabolism in the prostate. And that's one of the, one of the function of the nerves that we've found. So it's not, you know, metastasis, there might be a function, but really what we found is more of a local tumor uh, 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 formation. There's an important role of sympathetic nerve in the first paper, we also described that parasympathetic signals, or cholinergic signals, via muscarinic receptors, were playing a role in in metastasis. So in the knockout, we had more uh, metastasis and more lymph node invasion. Um, but we haven't pursued that that area uh, too much. We haven't had. I mean, it's a very small operation, the prostate in my lab. So something I would like to grow, but uh, you know. Well, not your prostate, but the, maybe the project. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the, I would say if I had to say one unifying theme in your uh, research is, and I, it's illustrated in just the rundown there of, of, of the role of the sympathetic nervous system in the prostate, is that the level of complexity that you get to is why you're so productive is because you look at such a fine level of detail and fine resolution. Um, and... I think that it shows that because the problems in biology are very com complex, right? And the settings in which these cells grow, it's not so simple as the role of XYZ cell, endothelium and angiogenesis. It's, it's multivariable, right? And I think nothing illustrates that more than the, the last thing I want to talk about that probably is overarching in most of your papers is the idea of the niche and the molecular niche yeah. and the marrow maintenance and mobilization, yeah. egress and, and homing. Um, but interestingly, as, as the blood, I always refer to the blood because it's this one cell can, can, you know, recapitulate the entire system. You would think that this is the, the, the first to drop. It would be the easiest to, and it has been, you know, the only gold standard stem cell therapy. It's, it, it, it's out there, but I, I, more in terms of like, why can't, I guess the question finally is given all your knowledge, if anyone could tell me what the challenges are, how close we are. It's you with your deep uh, knowledge of the niche. Why can't, <laughs> why can't we, why can't we make an artificial niche that can, or can we make an artificial niche for adult, like a pseudo bone marrow that could just make us marrow? Or why can't we recapitulate the kind of early hemangiogenic, the first yeah. hemangioblast that gives rise to everything from yeah. stem cells? Like, What's, what's the fundamental roadblock there, or roadblocks? 
I, that, I wish I wish I knew. You know, yeah, I'm <laughs> asking you. I'm asking you. To resolve for the past 50 years. Uh, yeah. Thank yeah, you that's very a low blow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> Paul. But that's you got to give me an answer. I'm afraid. Yeah. No, but that's, well, that's one thing that we've learned over the past uh, 10 years, right? That we, um, I certainly, I thought going. To particularly when we had found the, the role of nerves in 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 uh, regulating stem cell, I thought that this would you know if we track the nerves, we're gonna know, and and find what the the niche cell is, okay? Uh, because uh, we thought, and we and many thought that there's one one cell. Because uh, you know you think one cell is, is really uh, important and sufficient uh, to maintain uh, stem cells, and so they are. You know they are cells that maybe are more important than others. But uh, I think this will be. I, I think it's hard. It's like uh, it's hard to know. Uh, I think uh, that's what we've realized. Is and if you read all the papers that have uh, been published over the past ten years, and basically. You know, there's a lot of cells that have been suggested to to contribute either directly or indirectly to stem cell maintenance. So it's extremely, you know, complex. And and one other challenge is, particularly if you're talking about uh, making uh, uh, an organ, an ex vivo organ, to to mimic the bone marrow. Um, is is the the changes that take place when you take a cells out uh, a cell out of uh, of its natural environment, and uh, I think maybe you know you know the endothelial cells very well from from your background. Um, we've worked more on the stromal cells on our side, and and we found that the stromal cells they changed tremendously and recently actually we have a study that will be published soon where we have looked at this and, and tried to revitalize them uh, in in uh, using so basically the approach we well we found that and it sort of was maybe known before but but we've looked at that more carefully that if you take a niche cell you know the the niche cell that you can you know, either a car cells, and we we took the nestin uh, GFP as a marker, or if you took leptin receptor, these are you know largely overlapping cells. If you take these cells and you plate them in culture, uh, the niche factor expression will go down tremendously uh, over a period of of days. Um, certainly, three weeks later, they're they're very different. And that takes, that's the time it takes to expand the cells to be able to look at hematopoietic support. Mm -hmm. So the support you have are cells that don't look anything like what they were in vivo. So that's one reason why it doesn't work very well. And, and we've tried over the years, you add back, we even added neurons, you know, to try to, to see if we can change things. It's been, you know, largely um, nothing has, has really worked. So that's why we took then the genetic approach and, and looked by RNA-seq at various, we thought that the transcriptional program of the cells must be, you know, just completely changed. And so we looked at tra all the transcription regulators of, of these uh, enriched niche cells 
in vivo and compared to the culture one. And we've looked at, at those that were, we were looking at things that were downregulated in culture. And so we isolated uh, a bunch of factors, like 28 in India, and we had 28 candidates, which, you know, there probably are more as well, but, you know, with the cutoffs that we use, we had 28 candidates. We had to take, you know, a, a number that we could handle. And we did a Yamanaka-like experiment, uh, putting back these 28 factors and see uh, which one, uh, or if any, are uh, helpful to revitalize the cell. So we're not looking at reprogramming in terms of changing the fate of the cells, but but uh, reprogramming in terms of, you know, bringing them back to what they were in vivo. And sure enough, we found five, five factors that seem to be uh, uh, pretty good at uh, revitalizing uh, the cells in terms of their uh, promoting their ability to support stem cells in, in ex vivo. So you think uh, so that we're moving towards uh, uh, recapitulating the niche? I mean, small steps, and maybe we'll never get there, so like maybe, to be a perfect uh, replica, but we're making progress to a point where we can extend the life or self-renewal of HSCs, you think, in, in ex vivo in an artificial yeah, well, system? Our idea is ultimately if you find... Uh, I think the, the microenvironment support is must be, and everybody would agree with this, I guess, important for stem cell specification, hmm. right? Uh, so, and of course, stem cell expansion also. Stem cell expansion is really tricky because we all know that as stem cell divide, you know, it's very difficult to maintain the cell for renewal capacity, and and it's, it might be possible, but there's that's a, another level of difficulty. So you have two issues: the issue of specification. If you take ES-derived uh, uh, hematopoietic stem cells, that's been difficult to generate because of the specification signals, uh, particularly for the definitive hematopoiesis. So that's where I think uh, microenvironment could be useful, but you have to have the right microenvironment. Right. And a microenvironment that you could manipulate properly. So and when it's a... When it's a stem cell system, it's really a moving target, as you say, it's right? A, it's it's very it's very difficult. Um, I mean, we have generated these these lines based on the factors that we have identified. We will test whether they where they have. That's obviously on the list of things to do. Whether they can uh, also uh, promote uh, the specification of stem cells from ES uh, differentiation. Uh, we will see. I think it may be and may end up to be uh, more complicated. So the issue of bringing the other cells that have been, you know, implied to endothelial cells, you know, as you know, you know, you have the role of megakaryocytes that are in there. You have macrophage, you have uh, Tregs, and you have a bunch of other cells. So how can you have the right dose, the right signals, the right place? That's, that's a difficult, uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, that's that's what we have to see. That's the future. Um, but that's going to be a yeah. It's a difficult chat task. But you know, yeah, that's what makes it fun too. <laughs> well, I just want to just as you mentioned megas. I just want to plug your recent paper in Blood, uh, looking at Maya, which is created by megas <laughs> and its role. If you guys want to get out there and read. If it's a new month, you can count on a new paper from the Frenet Lab. So it is February, 
and there's that blood paper out. And he told you there's another one coming out pretty soon, so you can wait for that. Just to end, though, you know, this is a really nice chat, but we want to know more about you as a person. Your science is deep. Uh, I got a couple questions, kind of peek behind the veil. One of these, the first, is uh, in two parts. This is a question which maybe you've already answered. What was, like, your greatest aha moment? And then the second half is, like, what was your greatest... Uh, disappointment or surprise like oh, I didn't expect that to be the result oh, well the greatest uh, aha moment I mean there are maybe there, there are a few I think uh, you know maybe the the greatest I, I probably said it already in, the, in this and um, you know by telling about the circadian story, I think, or the first neural story, the first time the nervous system, it was sitting on us and then it took time. It was pretty uh, strong aha moment. I That's think, a great, a good example, sorry to interrupt, because about the first one, when you had the first story, it sounds like it, it percolated because you kind of excluded everything else. And then it was like yeah. the nervous system. When you yeah. had that, what, because you had so much time to sit on it, was it that yeah. cliche that everyone said, like, you're sitting in the tub or wherever, and you're like, aha, is it a true aha in that same way? Or is it just, like, one of the many ideas you have? Like, you had ten ideas, and you check out nine of them are junk, and the one works out, and you're like, oh, that was the one. Is, I always wonder if the aha is, like, you know it's true when it occurs to you. Can you can you tell me that? You know, <laughs> you know, it's. Uh, I wish I, I, you know, it's been now quite some time. I wish I. I mean, I do remember. I don't remember in the uh, as as much as it's that as vividly as I would like, or maybe I have to reflect on this more to remember. Um, you know how, but I think it was. Um, pretty hard <laughs> it was but even if i as i mentioned the idea of the nervous system was percolating i mean it was i was i had the idea two years before we started mm -hmm. at least two years before we started working on this because you know the mice were showing, were telling us right that was something we didn't listen to the the, uh, the the phenotype you know the phenotype was telling us there might be something associated with this um but uh so, but when it became, I mean, because it was so unbelievable that that where that's where the haha came from. I said, is that that's you know even is, is that possible? That you know that was is that possible? So that's yeah, that was pretty strong. Um, and the same with the circadian was was also the way it happened was uh, uh, surprising. Um, there, you know, there are a few. Uh, I mean, the nesting cells, they were uh, also aha moment uh, when we, um, you know, we're looking at the niche cell at that. In those days, the niche cell was really undefined. Uh, people, um, you know, suggesting osteoblasts were, were the niche. That was the predominant thinking at the time. And our data with the nerves were telling us maybe perivascular cells because the nerves are always associated with blood vessels. Mm -hmm. Are, are playing a role. And so we went after a perivascular cell. And so when we, uh, you know, by sort of by chance found, you know, this nesting mouse that a colleague of ours at Sinai had and had shown me a picture years before, and I just shot in the dark. We, we looked at, at, at these mice. It was a shot in the dark because we were looking at perivascular cells and all the things that we were trying to get or looked at 
didn't work. I mean, there was a back transgenic of CXCL12. It was not working in the bone marrow. And so it was running out of option. And and when we look at Nestin, uh, it was a long shot, but it there were cells in the bone marrow. And when Simon Mendes Ferrer did the, the PCR, I remember him walking in my office and, say, and saying that these cells express loads <laughs> amount of, of CACL12 and SCF. So we knew we had, you know, finally we could prospectively isolate a, a niche. We thought it was mm -hmm. a very good niche candidate uh, and, at, at the time. And um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was a, a moment, aha moment, I would say. Um, that was, uh, yeah, good. You got yeah, you got a list. These happens periodically, you know. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of down. We have to see, you know, as everybody who does science that who is listening now, uh, you know, there are lots of uh, lower moments. But I always think that these, you know, these highs uh, are really worth it. Uh, are worth the the, uh, the low moments that we will have. Well, for sure. I mean, the highs they sustain you, right? Well, you've had a lot more highs than most, though. You got a long list of ahas. You must be tired of saying aha. You're working out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never get tired. You never get tired. It's it's fun though to hear because it's uh, I'm sure everyone likes to know that everybody does the same little dance when they see that thing that they've been looking for. And I'm sure I can picture you and Simon Ferrer doing a little dance in the office there with the nest and cell. It's such a cute picture. All right, second question. It's a, it's another series here. We're choosing the fill in the blanks um, for you here. Number one. Uh, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? The biggest thing in the stem cell field. So that's, that's, that's the, you know, it's always difficult to pick a biggest thing. I, you know, I, I'm impressed now the current is the new technologies. Um, you go to every meetings, people, you know, single cell is very important for, for stem cell and the insight that uh, we are getting and all the, the, the papers that are coming out and people are presenting. Um, I think uh, that's, that's also, that's bringing, I think also it's just the, the tip of the iceberg uh, ultimately, but it's bringing a lot of insight about uh, cells, about new cells or new cell types and subsets of cells that we thought were you know, fairly homogeneous. Mm -hmm. And so we, we are learning, um, I think, uh, a lot about that. And ultimately also technologies now are driving us to uh, understand uh, even the complexity in where we're interested in the microenvironment, but even in, in the native environment, we will be able in future. Now the systems are not that good to look at that, but you can look by you know, site off like uh, mass mm -hmm. uh, uh, spectrometry, uh, looking at, at the various markers of cells in in situ, uh, and so that's going to give you know more more insight. Uh, I think this is going to be uh, I, what we need though is to be able to have a system that allows us to look at many parameters mm -hmm. and still get viable cells. Right. Real-time, multivariable. Yes, I guess that's that the uh, be, holy grail. The ideal, but, but there's already, you know, a lot of progress. And um, 
and the single cell uh, technologies will, will improve, we'll get more and more insight about the metabolism, about, uh, uh, well, even even the sequencing will get better and we'll hey, you know, and, I'm talking with a guy now about doing uh, ChIP-seq single cells. Can you imagine? I mean, I would have never, I didn't think it was even conceivable. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we're, we're doing crazy stuff with the tech. Second question, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without... Well, without, uh, you know, there's many things in that, in that question. I, I think, you know, for me, I come, I'm a medical person, you know, I'm, uh, I, originally I'm a hematologist. I was a, in the hematology track, but I was interested in research. So I wouldn't be where I am for sure without, uh, the opportunity, you know, given to, to do, to do basic research uh, and to do it in in a way, you know, committed way. Uh, with the track that I was, I was never on a PhD track. I don't have a PhD. So um, I think that that was very uh, fortunate that I was able to enroll in the program that that's, you know, su supported that and allowed me to to get into the lab and try it out. And then, of course, the people that have, you know, that have uh, taught you, uh, you know, I, I trained uh, with uh, Denisa Wagner and, and Richard Hines uh, in Boston. Um, and that was quite, you know, quite some time in, in, in uh, the lab with a little, little bit of clinic here and there. And then I moved to New York and, uh, you know, people that hired you that I wouldn't be here with, uh, without. So Barry Kohler hired me at Mount Sinai. Uh, initially, and and um, and you know, people that mentored me, uh, you know, George Atway uh, at Sinai in the first grants I wrote with all the mistakes, and 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 um, and then uh, I'm I'm here at Einstein now, and I was recruited by Alan Spiegel. So all the people that have allowed you to, so I wouldn't be here if he had not, uh, you know, decided to recruit me. So there are many things in that question, I, I think. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's... it's it sounds uh, like people. People have made this happen for you. I think, though, you've turned it, turned it around, paid it forward. You're making it happen for a lot of young scientists out there. So you can, you can consider your life balanced. Three. <laughs> Thanks. When it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. I, there's a long list. Maybe I should ask your I should ask your wife. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Please don't ask my kids. Uh, uh, you know, so uh, you know, I'll say, I'll say on this one, because I would like to be better at this. But you know, if my car has a problem, a car mechanic. You know, I have, I have, I'm pretty much used to it. I mean, I, if I, God forbid, my car stops working in the, the, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Can't even know, change a tire? You could change a tire, Paul. No, the tire, I probably will figure it out. I'm talking about the uh, Yes, that engine. Well, look, That's you're in good company. If you, if you, author of 80 nature papers, 
can't change, uh, you know, or can't fix yeah, your, your car engine, we'll give you a break on that one, Paul. Oh, but a tire would be maybe for even problematic because I would have <laughs> trouble to find. <laughs> well, look, if it makes you feel any better, you want to laugh. I was in the weather the other day. It was last year, and it was terrible. And, of course, the car broke down on the highway. And me, like an idiot, I decide to s- settle in on a incline of about 20 degrees so i'm trying to jack up my car and the car keeps rolling off the jack so i'm i like you am pretty much useless on a a slippery slope (laughs) yes it was a slippery slope i made it out of there barely all right final final blank we have here if the lab catches fire and i have a chance to grab one thing on the way out it's that's easy that's the laptop, my laptop. Oh, that's yeah. It, that's, it. that's everything. <laughs> For sure. And actually, I would, yeah, I would definitely, yeah. The laptop is the, my most important, uh, valuable thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, Although it shouldn't be anymore because we're so in the cloud, um, you know, things are, are backed up. But, you know, in terms of my office, actually, my main backup is in my office. So my laptop comes with me or I would take my my external drive uh, but yeah one of the two you picked a good choice for your back because those are portable i've had <laughs> someone say they're like mass spec or something i think maybe that's that's a little bit aggressive uh, yeah. No, that, yes that, that would be <laughs> a it. sensible choice a sensible choice at the laptop yeah. All right, a sensible choice from a sensible man, Dr. Paul Frenette. This was a great chat. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We went a bit long on this one, but you know what? I think everyone's going to enjoy the conversation because you've got a lot of stories to tell, and uh, you're a great guest. So thanks for taking the time to uh, talk to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Nice to see you again, David. Always, always. Okay, y'all, that brings us to the end of the show. You can reach out to us on Twitter, at Stem Cell Podcast, or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com there you can give us some feedback or you can suggest some guests you know we're always happy to take uh, screwy guests if you got some outlandish suggestion science related stem related you know give it up share thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the stem cell podcast this was number 136 hsc trafficking with Dr. Frenette. Don't make a mistake. He's not some kingpin moving blood around the world, but he is breaking through vaso-occlusion and solving some serious problems out there. Dr. Paul, thanks for coming on. Thanks, you guys, for listening. See you in a couple weeks. 